Instead of our usual NIV translation, this next text comes from the IFAB, or the International Football Association Board, the authors of the official rules and laws of the game of association football. This then from the IFAB, page 11, starting to read at verse 1. Football is the greatest sport on earth. It is played on every continent, in every country, and at many different levels everywhere. Football must have laws which keep the game fair. This is crucial to the foundation of the beautiful game and a vital feature of the spirit of the game. The best matches are those where the referee is rarely needed because the players play with respect for each other, the match officials, and the laws. Football's laws are relatively simple compared to most other team sports, but as many situations are subjective and match officials are human, some decisions will inevitably be wrong or cause debate and discussion. For some people, this discussion is part of the game's enjoyment and attraction, but whether decisions are right or wrong, the spirit of the game requires that referees' decisions must always be respected. And so it goes on and on and on. For while the IFAB claims that the rules of football are simple, when you write every wrinkle, every nuance, every technicality of the beautiful game down, it turns out kicking a ball between two sticks is incredibly complex. You see, the rules of chess are 25 pages long. Darts, somehow, 32. Hockey, 68. Cricket, 89. And world rugby, 170. By comparison, the laws of football are not just longer than these other sports, but even the entire New Testament, weighing in at a whopping 230 A4 pages. Although, given their target market, that admittedly does include a significant number of pictures. <laughs> and there are some blank pages at the back for colouring in. But it was under 230 detailed pages of laws that last night Manchester City played Inter Milan in the Champions League final. But except for four match officials, I don't think any of the 72,000 fans in Istanbul's Olympic Stadium or the more than 400 million people watching from 200 countries at home had ever read the IFAB rules and laws in full. But that's okay because a football match is not a test of how well the players memorize the rules. It was not scholastic study that won and lost an exciting contest last night. But with what skill, passion, commitment and spirit every player went out and played the beautiful game for themselves and for their team. The New Testament might be shorter than the rules of football. But when we read the Bible, there is a risk that we reduce it to just that, to a book of rules, a long list of laws. When we don't know what to do with all the important stuff that we find in the Bible, we tend then to simply turn it into a to-do list and then follow it all religiously as a set of rituals and regulations that we hope will gain us God's attention or win us God's approval. Because after all, rules make it easier to keep the score, to keep control, to understand how God feels about us, to measure how good we are, and even more satisfyingly, to debate and to discuss how bad everyone else is. 
but rather than inspirational players of life's beautiful game. This makes Christians appear to be hypocritical and hypercritical fourth officials, clutching and quoting from our impossibly big book of rules, blowing constantly on our whistles and handing out yellow and red cards as if our place in eternity depends upon it. But as author Mike Burrow wrote, following Jesus is not always easy, but it was never meant to be complicated. Instead of seeing the Bible as hundreds of pages of detailed rules, we need to hear God's simple invitation to run out onto the pitch of life alongside him and just start playing. Because Jesus' life shows us a different and a simpler way. A way not of judgmental rule enforcement, but of radical welcome, sacrificial service, ultimate humility, and unbounded mercy. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. All Matthew tells us here about himself is that he is a tax collector, that most reviled of professions. But he doesn't stop to tell us anything more about himself. Because what he's longing to share with you, just like he immediately shared with his friends, is the good news of who this man Jesus really is. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, when the Pharisees, these most infamous and unforgiving refereeing officials of all time, see Jesus spending time with Matthew and his motley collection of mates, who they considered not just to be unsavory, but ritually and spiritually unclean, morally repugnant, their immediate conclusion is that Jesus' reputation is stained and destroyed. He is guilty merely by association. But Jesus rejects their legalism and intolerance. In verse 12, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees, you see, have placed their hope in sacrificial lists of what they won't do, and measure their own purity and piety by who they won't associate with. But their lives are ultimately lived in fear, not hope. Because how good is good enough? How much sacrifice is sufficient? This is the question Micah asked in chapter 6, verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah and Jesus both teach us that God desires not sacrifices from ourselves, but for us to show and to share his mercy to others. God's law is not meant to be protected, preserved, purified internally, but to be applied and acted out externally. For following Micah's list of impossible sacrifices comes verse 8 that succinctly concludes, what then does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's our sermon 
in a sentence this morning. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You see, Micah reminds us not to trust in the scale of our sacrifice, but the generosity of our justice. For while the teachers and enforcers of the law wield their justice as retribution, God longs for us to bring about his justice through restoration. Because to God, justice is not an abstract, absolute legal concept that he wants and expects us to learn and to study, but it is something that is an everyday action that we are each called to participate in. God's justice speaks to our responsibility to treat others fairly, to advocate for the oppressed, and to work towards a just society where everyone has an equal opportunity, dignity, and destiny. I always quote Bob Goff. Bob Goff was himself a lawyer, and he wrote recently, I meet a lot of people where faith is important to them, and they're trying to be Jesus' lawyer but he didn't need one, and you're never good enough. Justice doesn't mean God's word being zealously protected by a legion of Pharisaic lawyers, but being actively amplified and exemplified by an army of agents of justice, a church willing to stand against injustice and inequality. Mercy, not sacrifice, means seeing and serving everyone the way that Jesus did not turning our noses up at sin, but rolling up our sleeves, extending a helping hand to those in need, comforting the brokenhearted, and forgiven and forgiving those who have wronged us. The word Micah used for mercy can also be translated as loving kindness or steadfast love, and we've sung those words this morning, and goes beyond mere politeness, niceness, or superficial acts of goodwill. For loving mercy is a beautiful virtue that reflects and radiates the very loving heart of God himself. It was this quality of mercy in the early church, their radical inclusivity, their engagements with society of suffering people, their love for the least, their healing of the broken, and their seeking of the lost that led to the explosive growth of the early church and Christianity. What might happen if instead of passively following our rules, we proactively follow that example? Loving mercy by showing compassion, empathy, and loving kindness to those we know and those we don't, to those we like and those we dislike, to those we agree with and those we disagree with, to those who deserve it, and most radically of all, to those who don't. After all, it's only by God showing mercy to those who don't deserve it that we ourselves are saved. Romans 5 verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What better response then than to repay our unearned mercy by paying it forward? Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And finally, Micah calls us all to walk humbly with our God. Walk means to live or have our life. To walk humbly with our God. For humility is an attitude of the heart that recognizes our very dependence on God. It recognizes his sovereignty over our lives. And when we walk humbly with our God, we acknowledge that our lives are not our own. Our salvation is not our own. And we celebrate instead that we simply belong to him. In humility, we seek his will and his grace, we submit 
and we surrender. Humility opens our hearts to God's transforming power and allows us to experience the fullness of his presence in our lives. Notice that we're invited to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We are not instructed to do these things for God or to get his attention or to gain his favor or because otherwise we'll somehow be punished. But we're simply invited to walk with him as Adam and Eve once did in the garden. In Hebrews 4 verse 5 we read, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's humility. It's the opposite of that arrogance and self-assurance of those Pharisees who sweated and fretted to earn admission to the kingdom through their own piety and purity. And all the while, they were living in constant fear that any one small single fault or failure would wipe them out. So they had to keep adding and adding more and more rules and excluding more and more people. They remind me a little of the sport with the longest rule book of all. If you add up the technical, financial, and sporting regulations of Formula One, then together you end up with a book far longer than the entire Old and New Testament combined, and perhaps the only sport where the winning team is indeed the one which studies and bends every single one of the rules to the absolute limit, and occasionally beyond. But while Christian Horner and Toto Wolff are the Pharisees of sport, We still meet some Christians today who believe if they just know and keep every detail of the law, that when the final day of judgment comes, they will win on some kind of technicality, pass some difficult and complex scrutineering test, or somehow squeeze into heaven on the basis of a steward's inquiry. And I want to end with two things about that. First and most simply, and perhaps most importantly, In and through Christ, we have already won. You have already won. You don't need some loophole, technicality, or perfect score of your own. Jesus does that for us. Jesus has already done that for you on the cross. But is that it? Game over? Jesus won? Satan nil? Yes and no. We are blessed not just to be blessed but to be a blessing. We have already won. You are on the winning team, but the game is not over. To quote the German poet and philosopher Goethe, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Being willing is not enough, we must do. Religion, rules, and rituals are never enough or an end in themselves, just as being willing and able is not sufficient. To save and transform a broken world, we must do. Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Being willing is not enough, we must do. Being blessed is not enough, we must be a blessing. So how do we do that? How do we seek and save the lost? How do we bring heaven to earth? How do we live out the Ten Commandments? How do we see and reveal the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? How do we love God and love people? See, that's starting to sound a bit like a list. Long, complex rules that we need to remember. But remember, while following Jesus isn't always easy, it was never meant to be complicated. Whenever we're tempted to do it on our own, Jesus reminds us that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Echoing the assurance from Micah 6 that all the Lord requires is justice, 
mercy, humility, repeat. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Instead of an IFAB-style rulebook, throughout the pages of the New Testament, Jesus shows us another way, a living way, an active way, a loving way to play the beautiful game of life, a truly beautiful, merciful way. Instead of church sitting around and debating and discussing others' mistakes like some sort of Pharisaic pundits, Jesus teaches each and every one of us that we are not called to referee the world on his behalf, but to save it and to serve it. So may we each run out onto the pitch alongside our captain and with skill, passion, commitment and spirit play life's beautiful game for ourselves and for each other with these words from Micah ringing in our ears. Act justly, love mercy, for when you walk humbly with your God, you will never walk alone. Amen.